Well, this morning we're continuing our series, Marks of a Healthy Church, and we're going to talk about a biblical understanding of church discipline. This time the elders are going to close the doors to make sure no one leaves. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, difficult subject at hand, but as we get started, hopefully you see the tone in which Jesus has for us in Matthew 18 and the pattern he's laid out for us. Now, follow with me this morning as we kind of launch into this. What if an American football player traveled to Europe to visit some friends? Now, I asked in the first service a specific football player, but, you know, who's your favorite Seahawk? Anyone want to say? Wilson. That was the same one as the first one. Russell Wilson, okay? How many used him? He, he travels to Europe to visit some friends, and, and while he's there, they decide to play football. They're in Europe, so that's soccer. Okay, and he's like, yeah, he's a good athlete. He can do a number of things, actually. He's a phenomenal athlete. So he says, I'm going to play. I'm going to play soccer. So and the game starts, and the things are going. In the middle of the game, he, he, he swings by, picks up the soccer ball, and runs to the other end. No one can catch him. He's Russell Wilson. And he gets in, and he scores, and he spikes the ball, and everyone's like, wait, wait a minute. That, that, that's not what you do. And the whistle, you know, the ref comes over and starts I'm saying that's not, that's not the process. You're, you got it all wrong. And you may imagine the confusion now, Russell Wilson thinking, no, that's what you do. It's, it's football. You know, he's doing what he should. He picked up the ball and just score. Now you have two responses in this moment. You either just call the foul, saying it's not allowed for the, for the player to pick it up, but it's only for the goalie that can pick up the ball. And so don't make that mistake again. Or you could take some time to explain the game of soccer, as we know it in America, to this new, this new athlete. Explaining that this game is played with your feet and not your hands, which begs the reason why in the world we call it football in America, right? We're wrong, by the way. Everyone else in the world is right. It's football. We, and in fact, just so you know, outside of the United States, when they talk about football, they say American football because it, it doesn't make sense, and it doesn't really make sense, but that's right. Well, church discipline is the same and described in two ways. We could say that it's just the act of correcting someone, calling a foul and then getting back to the game. Or better yet, we can explain the foul in the larger context of what God is calling us to do. We explain the reason for discipline for sin and look to encourage growth for the individual in their walk with the Lord. And we teach that discipline is part of the discipleship process for the believer and pray that God uses our ministry to lay a foundation of proper repentance that doesn't lead to the final steps of church discipline that we'll look at this morning. We gather this morning, as I said last week, we gather as the church, the family of Edgewood Bible Church. And if you're new here this morning, we're glad you've come. We hope that your time this morning has been profitable and that you've seen our family in action. For those of you here last week, we tackled the issue of church membership in our series of Marks of a Healthy Church. And this morning, we're going to continue this series in the area of church discipline, and it ties in. We're going to look at one passage, as I mentioned, Matthew 18, and look at the subject and what Jesus has to say for us. So there's a number of things we want to cover this morning, so I'm going to pray, and we're going to get started. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come before your word, and we worship you. You are worthy of our worship, and song, and prayers, and giving. And now in the preaching of your word, and the reading of your word, Father, we ask that you give us insight also, understanding. May we come as students of your word this morning. Even as we tackle a, a difficult subject, give us hearts to 
be receptive to what your word says. I pray that you would speak through me, that I would stand aside, that you would be the teacher this morning. I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. As I began to prepare for this, I realized that this chapter is quite important, the life of the church, and often misunderstood. It's a chapter seldom taught from, preached from. It's an important chapter for the life of the local church. And I wanna make sure we understand what Jesus is talking about here in this chapter. These are rich verses and need to be developed and accepted for us as a family for the glory of God. I will not be able to tackle every single question in this chapter. I'm gonna try my best. But I wanna begin here at the, the beginning of Matthew 18, starting at verse one and walk through the majority of these verses. Verse one, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This beginning part has to do with becoming a Christian and then, and then living like a Christian as the, the chapter expands. And the chapter begins with a phrase at that time, which connects back to chapter 17 and the previous chapters and the previous stories. And you can read and, and no one understand that. I want to encourage you to do that. The powerful picture of Peter as he confesses Jesus Christ as Lord in Matthew 16, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And then, and then Matthew also talks about the transfiguration that happens where Jesus brings with him James and John and Peter to the mountain. And all these big things are happening in this gospel. But then this question comes in Matthew 18, hey, which one of us is the greatest? And if you remember a few months ago, I, I shared a sermon on Mark 9, and we talked about this idea of what greatness is, what true greatness is, and service to others. And Jesus there gently teaches his disciples what true service looks like. And in this chapter, Jesus is going to teach them what a true Christian looks like. And he mentions a child. And to be Christian, you must become like a child. What does Jesus do? But he calls a child over to be an example for these men. Truly I say to you, in other words, he says, you better get this, guys, pay attention. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the message is clear. To become a citizen of the kingdom, you must become a child of the king. This is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. You're, you're a child of the king. No matter how old you are, you are still a child of the king. And he isn't talking about childish behavior, but the humility of a child. You understand what I mean, right? A child is born into this world needing help, needing someone to care for them, to protect them, to supply for them. And Jesus is painting a picture for us this morning. As a Christian, you turn from self-support to support of the Father. You're trusting the Father. You need him, and you know it. You know, I think about our nine-month-old little girl in our house, Lucy, who needs everything. She needs her diapers to be changed. She needs food. She needs to be held. She needs to be soothed and cuddled. She needs this. And she cannot do any of these things for herself. And, and guess what? She knows that she needs it. There's no pride in her for asking for help. She just cries out and we help. She's displaying humility even without thinking about it. Now, you know, a child comes into the world not really understanding their social status. They're not staying awake at night as a, as a child wondering who the greatest is. It doesn't cross their mind. They also, as a, as a baby, an infant, a child, seem to have any fears when it comes to breaking social norms. 
Children do things that adults would never stoop to do, right? Now, Jesus is not saying that every characteristic of a children should be emulated for the believer. So whining and temper tantrums, no. He's not saying do that. The emphasis here is on humility. Christian knows that they cannot save themselves and rely upon God for every part of salvation. To be a citizen of the kingdom, you must become a child of the king. So before I go any farther into this message, I have to ask, are you a child of the king? Are you a child of the king? Have you ever come to the point of understanding that God is holy and that you're not? That you know you're a sinner and you're in desperate need of saving? Have you ever come to to Jesus, the son of God who came to die on the cross for your sins and then rose again three days later as a victor over all your sins and knowing and coming to him saying, I need to be saved. Have you turned from yourself, from every fig leaf to cover your nakedness of sin and have found complete covering and satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone? Have you like a child left behind all that you were holding on to, all that you were trying to do yourself and, and run to God? And if you've not, I implore you this morning to trust in him. And I want to be honest with you this morning. If you've never come to Jesus like a child with humility, you're not saved. The only way to be saved is to be low, is to be humble, is to recognize you need saving. So I encourage you to humble yourself today. Understand that you're a sinner. There's not enough goodness in your side of yourself to get to heaven. You need Christ's goodness. You need his righteousness. And, and the word says today is the day of salvation. So I would encourage you to repent of your sins and to trust in him, to be a Christian, to be a child of the king. And the, the, the good thing after that, if you become a child of the king, you become part of the church. We talked about that last week, right? We, at length, we, we talked about as a believer, you automatically become part of the universal church, the church, everyone. And then we looked at what it looks like to follow the pattern in scripture of becoming a member of a local church. And Jesus here sets the stage for the rest of the chapter and he's going to talk about the father's love for his children and then how this love affects the way we love each other in the church. So look at verse five. It said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And obviously you can read this and, and to be Jesus talking about his care and protection of his children. And most definitely he's talking about that, but it's not the entire point of what he's saying. What Jesus has done here in this passage is equating all of his followers with children, children of the father. He's using a physical child as an illustration of a spiritual reality. Every one of my followers is a child of the king. So whenever I read or whatever you see, child or little one in this passage, it's not referring to a physical child, but to spiritual children. Child means Christian in the rest of this passage. So Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. He's wanting us again to, to bring a real living child into view because I believe there's some significant things for us to learn about humility in regards to us as Christians. About humility, about sin, about repentance. And I want to get there. It'll take a few minutes. What, as I thought about that, what are some things we can notice about little children? And the first thing that came to my mind Something you notice about little children is that they're completely ungrateful. Right? They're completely unaware that they've ruined your life. 
You once slept nine, 10 hours easily. And they come in and they ruin it. They're unaware. Peaceful, uninterrupted sleep, peaceful, uninterrupted coffee in the morning. All these things are now gone. You reconfigure everything about your life when a child comes. You've lost your freedom. You once had it, now it's gone. And they're ungrateful, right? I mean, you ever seen this with your kids? You, you, you think, I'm gonna do something nice. I'm gonna get them an ice cream cone. And they're like, thrilled, thank you, an ice cream cone. And five seconds after it's done, they're like, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> they're children. They're thinking about one thing, themselves. And, and Jesus is painting a picture here relating children to us. And you say, maybe that sounds harsh or unfair. And I'm not bashing children. I have four. I love them. But they can be ungrateful. And so can we. He's pointing out something about ourselves. Another thing about little kids and children, in fact, are they're powerless. They have no money. They have no social power. They, they have nothing to enhance the life at that point. They, they literally come into this world naked. They come in the world with nothing. They cannot pull their weight on the house. You know, I, I can't ask my nine-month-old to do the dishes. She's of no help. She can't do it. Can't ask her to do anything. All I get in payment from my nine-month-old is a smile once in a while. And as a parent... You know, don't get me wrong, I love it. It's great. For those of you parents with teenagers, you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, right? Because you haven't seen a smile on your house in weeks. All right, teenagers, I'm looking at you. Smile at your parents this week, okay? Like, do it right now, in fact, just so you know. Come on. You know, we think about that as, as young kids, and we love that. You know, our kids smile at us. It's a good thing. But, but smiling doesn't pay the bills, right? Have anyone ever went to the mortgage company and said, I'd like to pay my bill? doesn't do anything. So as children, they, they have no power. They have no ability. They have no sway. So what does this have to do with verse five? Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. I believe Jesus is saying, if you've welcomed me into your life, then one of the marks of a new life is that when you meet people, you engage them. I don't walk into a room and run a filter on all the people who can't help me. I, can't, I don't look at people and say, well, this person's of no help to me. I'm not gonna talk to them or have anything to do with them. You're not looking for people who can do something for you. You're, you're not looking for people who will boost your credibility. In other words, you're not just ignoring the small, the weak, the inconsequential, like children. Jesus is saying you're welcoming everyone. You're welcome, you, you show love and care and concern, just like I have welcomed you. And you as a Christian are not just looking for people to help you move forward in this world. You don't avoid people who just are a drain on you or no benefit for your life. What would happen if Jesus had done that to us when he came? To look at us and say, you're of no benefit. None of us would bring benefit to Jesus. And we meet Jesus, it's a one-way street, right? We would get it all and we give him nothing. And he gladly does that. He doesn't accept us based upon something inside of us or how great we are. He just dies for us in spite of what's inside of us. So all of that, all of this leads to the fact that Jesus is teaching these men about humility. Combating this, this issue of pride. And we all 
all struggle with pride. How quickly it flares up in our lives and how easy it is to ignore it or to not see it in our life. Moving on in verse six, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. And this is most definitely some strong imagery that Jesus uses here. He says, if you cause one of these children to stumble, to sin, how do we do that? Well, verse 10 gives us some insight possibly. He says, see that you, you do not despise one of these little ones by looking down on them. One of the best ways to throw another Christian into doubt or bitterness is to push them off the path of spiritual growth and to look down on them. And Jesus is warning those that cause his children to sin. He cares for his children. Jesus cares deeply for his children. Don't you understand this as parents? We get this as parents, right? It just comes. You know, the moment the baby comes, it almost—it just the light switch turns on. You understand this protection. You know, as a parent, you understand. You say, if you hurt me, you know, you can say things to me. You can do, I can take a lot. But if you go after my children, if you go after my daughters, things will not go well for you. And the protection kicks in there. You know, you've probably seen these, these mems, these shirts about fathers and their daughters dating. Have you seen that before? Yeah, I find humor in that. I'm gonna have an application for suitors for my daughter someday. I was reading a blog post by another dad had figurative conversation with this boy wanting to date his daughter and the dad said this, my daughter's heart is a fragile thing. If you play with hers, I will show you yours. He continued, if you ever find yourself alone with my daughter, don't panic. Just correct the situation immediately. If I ever catch you trying to be alone with my daughter, that would be the time to panic. The idea of a protection and a good father watches out for his children in an even greater, more passionate way than he watches out for himself. And that's the picture that Jesus is giving about God the Father. Jesus says it would be better. It would be better, he says, for this one to have a great millstone tied around his neck and be thrust in the water. One commentator said that this is literally a donkey millstone referring to a large stone that was turned by a donkey rather than to a small stone used as a hand mill. So no matter how good a swimmer you are, if that's tied to your neck, you're not gonna make it. Jesus doesn't, in all this, he's not sugarcoating sin. And that's the most clear thing throughout this chapter. God doesn't look lightly on sin. He never has. Do we, do we look lightly on sin? Are you sitting there this morning thinking, yeah, I, I've sinned. I don't know if it's that big of a deal. It's just little, little things. Have you become so lulled into thinking that your sin is no big deal to God? God hasn't been dulled to our sin. He hasn't relaxed his law. God is holy. And God demands that his people not walk in sin, but walk in truth and in life with him. And God is serious about sin. God expects us as believers, as his children, to re be repenters. And he gives us some, again, incredible imagery here. Look at verse seven. Woe to the world 
for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter a life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye and with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. And in all this, Jesus is serious about sin. He's talking about repentance here. He's saying that if you see anything in your life that causes you to walk away from God, from obedience to him, then rip it out. Remove it. Don't make excuses. Don't defend yourself. Don't look the other way. Don't ignore it. Admit it and remove it. Folks, this is repentance. Jesus keeps pointing all of this out to the disciples about themselves and others. And not just themselves, but for others. We should should protect one another. We are selfishly concerned about each other's holiness and we're radically committed to our own holiness. As children of the Father, we watch out for each other and for ourselves. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And obviously, Jesus is using a strong figurative language here to cause us to realize that drastic action is necessary to overcome temptation. Or have we been just lulled? It's not that big of a deal. We think it's not that big of a deal. Or I, 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 can, I can work through it. Jesus says, if something's leading you to sin, get rid of it. Don't toy with it. Don't flirt with it. Don't entertain it. Destroy it. Are you this extreme when it comes to your sin? Or do you coddle your sin? You comfort your sin. You hold it tight. You feed it. You protect it. You defend it. You love it. You think about sin the same way that Jesus does. Do you hate your sin? Do you realize that sin is bloody? You know, in the book of Leviticus, the sacrificial system is described in gruesome detail, including what must be done with blood, fat, entrails of each animal and slaughtered for human sin. It's a book filled with smoke and scent and a river of blood runs through it, drained, collected, and spattered for the purpose of consecration and purification. And when the worshiper brought his burnt offering to the tabernacle, a bull, a sheep, or a goat, if he could afford it, or a bird, if he couldn't afford it, it was him, not the priest, that was responsible to slaughter it. He was implicated physically in the bloody business of sin and atonement. And he was, quite literally, at the scene of human crime. And if we're being truthful this morning, Do we understand the severity of sin? Do we appreciate a little holiness of God once in a while? Days like the tide roll in and out and we can easily forget the weight of the gospel. That blood was spilled. You think of blood when you think of your sin. That careless word spoken to your wife this morning while getting ready for church. You cut her down while putting yourself up and pushed her back and pushed yourself forward. That's just a little word. 
you sinned. Making sure you're up front and her back. That little sin deserves a blood payment. John Owen wrote a book in the 1600s called The Mortification of Sin. And Owen warns that there's no, no neutrality in our spiritual lives. He says, if there's not advancement against the enemy, there's retreat. He said this, let no man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. Owen takes pains to expose the way in which sin is deceitful. And his example, sin will always be modest in its first motions and proposals. And we're easily duped in, in, into believing that our sins are only small infractions, only slight indiscretions. This deception gives greater compromise. Owen says, sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or to entice, it might have its own course. It would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every, every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. It might grow its own head. And church, you need to listen. There's nothing benign about sin. Every sin is a cancer that will multiply and kill. And we need to be killing it instead. And this is what Jesus is driving at this chapter. You know, Owen coined this phrase, I believe it was him, but be killing sin or it'll be killing you. And when we are zealous about holiness in our own lives and purity before God the Father in our own lives, we will be zealous about protecting one another from sin. And when we're zealous about protecting one another from sin, we'll be all the more careful not to sin in our own lives. Yet when we are casual about sin in our own lives, we will casually lead others to sin in their lives. And we're okay with leading others to sin, we'll be okay with sinning ourselves. And my desire is that we will protect one another. We'll protect our brothers and sisters. Because in this world, you will face temptations at every turn. And we need to protect one another and protect ourselves. So how do we do that? Jump down to verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. When we talk about church discipline, this is the verses that we jump to. But if you don't have an understanding and read through the prior verses, the part of the chapter, you miss the heart of God. There are many in our world today that feel that church discipline is unloving, that it's harsh and legalistic. They say we should just show grace. Mark Dever, who I've mentioned a few times, has written about this. 
He says, imagine this church. It is huge and is still growing numerically. People like it. The music is good. The people are welcoming. There are many exciting programs, and people are quickly enlisted into the support. And yet the church, in trying to look like the world in order to win the world, has done a better job than it may have intended. It is not displayed in distinctly holy characteristics taught in the New Testament. And imagine such an apparently vigorous church being truly spiritually sick with no remaining immune system to check and to guard against wrong teaching or wrong living. Imagine Christians, knee-deep in recovery groups and sermons on brokenness and grace, being comforted in their sin but never confronted. Imagine those people made in the image of God being lost to sin because no one corrects them. Can you imagine such a church? Apart from the size, have I not described many of our American churches? End quote. Another pastor wrote, The church today is suffering from an infection which has been allowed to fester. As an infection weakens the body by destroying its defense mechanisms, so the church has been weakened by this ugly sore. The church has lost its power and effectiveness in serving as a vehicle for social, moral, and spiritual change. And this illness is due, at least in part, to neglect of church discipline. The whole point of church discipline is love. We care about people. We care about their lives, their spiritual lives. We love them and we love God. And we love them and care for them so much we're willing to be uncomfortable. We do not practice church discipline because it's fun. It is not fun. Church discipline is a bloody process because we deal with sin. And the whole point of discipline is restoration. That's the whole point. The whole goal, the whole focus is to bring people back in right relationship, right fellowship with God. That's what we want. That's the point. So if the point of church discipline is restoration, let's look at step one, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Folks, it's private correction. It's one person, another person. Galatians 6.1 tells us more generally. It says, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And in the Galatians passage, it gives us more clearer picture of the plight of sin. Ken San, in his book, Resolving Everyday Conflict, writes about this passage. He says, when Paul tells the Galatians to restore someone caught in sin, the Greek word translated as caught means to be overtaken or trapped. For the person who needs our help is ensnared when caught off guard. He's like an inattentive fisherman who becomes entangled in his net and he's going overboard. He hangs desperately to the side of the boat in danger of drowning. The fishermen and the person caught in sin have the same need. Their problem has become so serious, they may not be able to save themselves. They need someone to step in and help. Just as you wouldn't stand by and watch a fisherman drown, you shouldn't stand by and watch someone be destroyed by their sin. If we love one another in this church, we will go to them. And in this verse, we'll go by ourselves. And the point in all this that Jesus is saying is to keep the circle as small as possible. Don't talk about another sin with someone else. Maybe this is the first inclination sometimes to go to someone and say, you know, did you hear what so-and-so did? Don't do it. Protect your brother and sister and go to them directly. Don't go to a friend and do research 
You have the scriptures. Go to your brother, go to your sister with grace and with love and with patience. And again, what's the goal? Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the goal. If he listens, he repents, you have won him back. You've released him from the snare of sin. And notice, Jesus doesn't say, go to a pastor and have him do it for you. It's not in the passage. Not in that verse, at least. So we're faithful as a church in our relationships with others. If we're faithful in this, and our discipleship are one to another with the body of Christ, there should be plenty of conversations happening that I as a pastor have no idea about, that I never will hear about. Because one another are going to each other with love and grace and concern. Jesus teaches us that some situations the person in sin will not listen. And this leads to the second step and the circle grows. He says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Jesus is using an Old Testament process that you can see in Deuteronomy where they're witnesses to the truth of something. And you want believers to go along with you that are gentle, that are humble, that are patient, that are loving. They're going to a brother and sister who are in unrepentant sin. You're not going with a team to gang up. That's not the heartbeat. It's not there to, to build a case. That's not the point. So the people you bring along need to show love and grace. And the people you bring along might come and sit down in situations and say, no, actually, I don't see any sin of which that protects you and the one that you're coming to. Or they may say, yes, I see the sin in their life and we want him restored in a right relationship with Christ. This does not necessarily mean a church pastor or elder, although it could be, but oftentimes it's best to involve someone who knows the sinning brother, someone that cares for him already. And the third step, only if the sinning brother and sister doesn't repent of his sin, is listed for us in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And this is where the church is brought into the equation. And if you remember from last week, church here is translated ecclesia, which is the, the gathering of believers. This is where the, the circle grows to the gathering. And the church is now made aware of the brothers and sisters' unrepentant sin. And I want to be clear, this is unrepentant sin. If the brother or sister at any point in this process confesses their sin, repents of it, the process ends. Discipleship would continue, or relationship would continue, but the process of discipline ends. And the goal throughout it, as we pray and we work through them, is to keep the circle as small as possible. It's not to spread. It's not to share. That's not the goal. You may be sitting there thinking, this sounds unloving. This sounds even embarrassing. But I want you to remember again the tone of which Jesus has throughout this chapter. Jesus is saying in this, he wants the church family the church family to stand together as a family and say to the person, we love you. We want you to come back to Christ. Listen, brother and sister, God loves you so much that if you're caught in sin, he will send an entire army of believers to demonstrate his love and his mercy and his grace to bring you back. And Isn't that a picture of the love of God? The last step, if there is no response from the sinning brother or sister is, 
excommunication. I've got to say, uh, I didn't sleep well last night. I have nothing to share details, so don't go there, but this is difficult. Just being honest with you. Verse 18. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, Jesus says, treat him as an unbeliever. He's outside of the church. Treat him as if he's no longer your brother in Christ. He cannot be treated like part of the family of God because he's choosing his sin over God. And I want to be clear, this is commanded from Jesus. So if we do not do this as a church, we'll be sinning. And let's be honest, this is tough. This is really tough. It's hard to understand. It's tough to see this applied. It seems to go against every grain of truth that we know. We want to rise up, say this doesn't seem loving. But in all this, we need to remember how Jesus views sin. How God views sin. So if we show our love for the Savior, we repent of our sin and we do not hold on to it. God is serious about this. If someone who claims to be a Christian refused to live as a Christian and how they should live, we need to follow what the scriptures say. And for the glory of God and for the person's own good, we need to exclude him or her from membership of the local church. There's a number of passages in the New Testament which show God's view of sin in the local church. If you were to read 1 Corinthians 5, you would see how serious God deals with sin in the church. And the goal there, as well as it is here, is that hopefully, prayerfully, will lead to restoration of the brother and sister that he or she will see their sin, will repent of their sin, and return to Christ. It's for the good of the individuals, for the protection, though, also, and the purity of the church. And ultimately, it's for the glory of God and the body of Christ. And we need to trust Jesus on this, obey Jesus in restoring our brothers and sisters. And we need to believe Jesus. Look at the promises he gives in the middle of the, the church discipline discussion, restoration. Well, one, he has given us his authority. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, this begins a series of abused verses, particularly when they're taken out of context. And here again, Jesus is not giving some special authority outside of himself, but attached to himself and attached to his word. He's saying that what we do as a church in his name with his authority is a reflection of what he does in heaven. So if someone comes to the church and says, I'm living in sin, I'm refusing to repent, I do not want to repent, I will not turn to Christ, we can say to that person with authority, you're living bound in sin, your sin is not forgiven. Now it's not that their sin is unforgiven because we say so. Their sin is unforgiven because Christ has said so in his word. And we as a church are a reflection of that. Similarly, if someone comes to the church and says, I have sinned against God and I'm turning from it, I repent from it, I seek his forgiveness and I want to walk with him, then we can say with full confidence to that person, God forgives you based upon his word and you're free from it. Now he's not free because we said it. 
he is free from sin because Christ said he's free. Because his word says it. And he's given us the privilege of proclaiming what his word says to be true. So in the context of church discipline and the difficulty of church discipline, someone might say, well, by whose authority are you doing this? Jesus is saying in Matthew 18, you're doing this by my authority. And when you do this tough work, you're doing it on my authority, the very authority of heaven. One writer said, never is the church more in harmony with heaven and operating in perfect accord with her Lord than with dealing with sin to maintain purity. There's a humble confidence that comes with knowing that Christ has given us authority to speak against sin in the church, and he's given us his authority. And he's granted his, his support. Look at verse 19. He says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Again, a totally abused verse. This is not a blank check for somebody finding someone else that agrees with them on anything, and just poof, God responds and gives whatever you want. That's not what he's saying. You remember the context. Jesus has just finished talking about when two or three confront a brother in sin. And Jesus says, know this. When you gather together in unison to confront sin in the church, know that you have the full support of the Father in heaven and what you're doing. These are amazing promises that Jesus is giving us here. He knows that this church discipline is not easy. He knows that we're tempted to shy away from it and not carry it out. And so he's encouraging us here. You not only have the authority of heaven, but you have the full support of the Father. If two or three confronting sin in that small group see unrepentant sin in a brother and, and care enough to address it, then know that the Father in heaven is ready to provide you with everything you need in addressing it. And then he leads to our next promise. He's guaranteed his presence in it. Look at verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Another abused verse. How many times has it said, well, there, there are two or three gathered. Jesus is there. So since we got two or three, we can know Jesus is here. It's not what he's saying. Was Jesus with you this morning when you spent time in prayer by yourself? Yes. The verse isn't saying, well, you're, sitting, you're gonna sit down in your prayer closet and go get a friend and then Jesus will come. And we, we've, we've heard that before out of context that, well, we got two or three gathered. Jesus is here. It's not talking about that in a, in a Christian function. Instead, Jesus is saying, when you're in a difficult work of church discipline, when two or three of you are gathered with a brother or sister who's living in unrepentant sin, and you're doing the tough work of gentle, loving confrontation, be assured of this, my presence is with you always. And especially real, especially strong, especially needed, and especially in the middle of that situation. Jesus says, when you're carrying this out, church, be assured you will experience my presence in a unique and powerful way. So we have confidence. It doesn't make it any less more difficult. Jesus has given us authority and granted us his support and guaranteed his presence all towards one end that he would be restored. They would love others this way. 
I know that this can be tough to hear and understand. I've been praying all week that God would bring understanding. And I want to encourage you to continue to study God's word, to understand the importance of church discipline in the life of the church. But I pray more than anything about that is that we as believers, as a part of this church, live holy lives. Meaning when we sin, we repent. My prayer as pastor here is that we never leave the first step. That as we function as the body of Christ and walking together in our walk with the Lord, that we can encourage one another. That we're quick to repent, to turn from our sins, that we'll never have to get to that last step. As an elder board, we don't want to get to that last step. Our desire is for us to live holy lives that represents Jesus Christ well in this world, that we are a pure church. When we sin, we repent. And I pray that that'll be your encouragement also. Please pray to that end. Let me pray now. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you even in the midst of a difficult subject, but needed one. You've given us your word to guide us, to teach us, to lead us. Father, help us to submit under your word. Give us grace. Give us understanding. Father, I pray for all of us individually that we walk so close to you, God, that we are quick to repent of our sin. May we display that to others. When we recognize sin in our lives, whether individually or against someone else, may we be quick to ask for forgiveness, to return from it, to repent. May our church be known for this by others outside that they repent. They desire to walk holy lives with God. Help us, God. I pray that we can be an example to you in this community, that we can honor you as a church. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.